When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm joined by driver coach, musician, former racing driver, and general knowledge expert, Rob Wilson. <laughs> Ed, hello. <laughs> a very, very warm welcome. Thank you so much for coming down to a very bright and sunny uh, Woodcut Park. Um, we, can, we could hear the lawnmower outside, but that's, that's left of us for now. But um, we've got a really fun hour ahead of us. Uh, we've got loads of readers' questions. Um, Kareem Chantok actually called me up specifically to ply me with questions. Um, so hopefully, um, hopefully we can answer as many of those as possible. Um, for those of you that sort of don't know, I actually printed off a few of the series that you raced in. Oh, right. That, and yeah. I'm not going to read them all because we'll, we'll be here for two hours. But yeah. um, just starting sort of, oh, let's start at the top. We've got Dubai 24 Hours, FIA GT3 European Championship, American Le Mans Series, 24 Hours of Le Mans, Le Mans Series, American Le Mans Series again, British GT Championship, FIA GT Championship, IndyCar Series, NASCAR Bush Series, Bush East Series, and that's only back to 91, and it goes back to 1975. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I couldn't have come up with that list. And, and, and I think I sort of almost stopped racing at the end of 1980, you know. That, that yeah, yeah. Well, the, I have to say the but stats tell a very different story. Yeah, no, I'm, I, was, I must have been there. Yeah. Um, and then those that are sort of wondering about the musician part, um, if they Google Edison Lighthouse, Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes, that's you on the bass, is it? Well, not on that recording. It's a very small part of like all we were doing. We were um, with this uh, agency who were, had a series of one-hit wonder groups. So we would all be sitting just off Oxford Street near, near Dick James, the uh, manager who had Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck, and we were in the next sort of uh, office. And we'd sit there with, um, and, and someone would say, oh, the swinging blue jeans need a bass player this night. Or, um, and Desmond Decker, with the Israelites chap, would be sitting around there all day waiting to get gigs and waiting to get paid. And it was one of those very early 70s, one-hit wonder type <laughs> organizations. So you would find yourself in and out of, of different um, groups. Johnny Wakelin and the Kinshasa band, they had Inzaire, Muhammad Ali, um, and he, he he would be there, and he could only he had some hit records like Muhammad Ali got to number three. In Zaire was a, a big hit, but he could only ever write songs about boxes. And he, he came over as this sort of rather all black boxes, uh, fairly trendy stuff. He's actually a one-legged guy from Brighton, <laughs> and he could and so he'd write. So he'd be he would be sitting there, and and jobs would come in. And you would go off. And do. So that's all that was. Right. Okay. Well, and then, as I mentioned in the, you know, in the intro, you know, what you're sort of best known for is is the instruction. Um, and you've had, you know, for F1 alone, you've had Bottas, Raikkonen, you know, all the big names. Whether it's not just Formula One, there's sports cars, even rallying. Yes. Um, so, in a sort of as brief, brief a summary as possible, 
what is it that they come to learn from you specifically? Because I came along, but you'll you'll explain it much better than me. Well, it, it all comes down to the same thing. It, there's, it's your relationship with the surface. It's the rate you move your body, the rate you transfer weight. It's it's a that that's at least the icing on the cake. So when we get everything else done, that this this line, the other thing, we bring it back to this rate of weight transfer with your feet and your hands. You drive the car as much with your feet as you do with your hands. So when we're coming up to a corner, say we go to steer the car to the corner, I'll say, well, turn now. And you'll go, well, I don't want to turn now. <laughs> um, but we don't mean that biggest turn. It's just the subtlest of tiny turns. And it's the same as a, when you get a sidecar passenger on a, on a motorbike or they sit on the back and they race them. They come to a corner. Before they get to the corner, the guy in the back's, already leaning over and where he wants to get to because that's where they want the weight but and that's what we've got to do with the steering of the car except it's hidden when you're in the car you don't see it from the outside um and it's it but it makes a huge difference shortens the corner up enormously so that part of it is very important same with the braking introduce the car to the brake pedal so that we so that that that, that you don't go bang on the brakes because it doesn't matter how well they build the car, although the F1s are pretty close at it now, the rear brakes always get the message a bit later than the fronts. So if you go bang on the brakes and down goes the nose, up comes the rear, and then it gets its full brake pressure, of course, you don't, don't get the maximum out of the rear. So you introduce it. And so before the nose has gone down, meaning before the rear's come up, you've got that full pressure. And you get this little parachute effect at the back there. But you are staring death in the face, and so you need to separate the fear from the feel. You think, oh, I'm coming up to this, this barrier here or my teammate's going to outbreak me and ruin my career. And you've got to break late, but it's important that you move your body in the same way. Getting them to do that, that's, that's not easy. Yeah. You have to do it 100 times over. Yeah. And, I, and I seem to remember the t in terms of the actual sort of corner line itself, um, it's it's a case of actually making the corner a lot shorter than it mm -hmm. than it was previously. Yes. Um, so it's it's a case of just getting the car round it and straight. Yes, that's as right. As quickly as possible, rather than the really sort of smooth. Yes. Line. That's right. If we go to a racing school or someone, people will will point out the the most geometrically correct line, which is which is reasonable. You don't want people doing too too many weird things um, when they first get into racing cars. So, but the geometrically perfect line does often mean that the corner goes on a little bit long. And so it may, you may get a slightly higher minimum speed, but if that corner goes on a bit long, you've got a couple of degrees of tire scrub or slip angle in the car, and the car's not going forward as much as, as you'd like it to be going forward. In the older days, skinny tires made out of concrete, you needed to flick the nose in and hold this, and you'd hold this long four-wheel drift going around corners. But because the tires were so skinny, the, the cars didn't go slower. They, they kept going forward. But the more modern tires now, the gumball-type tires, you get into a bit of a long drift. It looks beautiful. It's well-driven. You know the lap is over because it just stalls the car. So you look more now to sort of a block system of driving, where it's a you know, bit more of a, of a sharper turn somewhere in the middle of the corner or near the exit of the corner, so that you can get steering out of it. It's uh, I'd, for anyone who hasn't been to see Robert, you work sort of mostly out of Bruntingthorpe, um, mm. and I always I love the thought of the likes of Kimi Räikkönen turning up to to Bruntingthorpe, or even Valentino Rossi when he was doing yes. the rally yeah, yeah. and driving around cones with you. Yes. I, I think it's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> um, I'd I'd love to just talk a little bit about Alonso and the Indy 500. Mm. Um, 
because it is he's disqualified fifth. Yes. Which is a remarkable effort. What what is it that separate is there something that separates top top drivers like Alonso out from the merely sort of good drivers? Is is there something that you've come across with someone like Raikkonen who Yes, but not so much at Indy. That that will be that will be down to the car setup. There's um James Hinchcliffe who had polled at Indy last year. Yeah. Who I train, he comes over and does right. days. He's seventeenth this year because the car didn't quite work. Now, if he was driving the same car on the same team in Formula One and he qualified, you know, on pole at Silverstone last year yeah. and was 17th this year, you know, there would be... Big questions. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, that's right. And so that's down to the car. So at Indy, um, the, the he's with Andretti's. I know the Andretti team very well. Marco comes over and does his time and, and, and the other, his other teammates have been as well. But... The, the, they've got a very good in, Indy setup there. They know how to go around Indy. The Honda engine and the, that aero package is working really well on the super speedways, which is what you would call Indy. So he's in a very good car. So it's more down to the setup um, at, there. I would have thought you could have taken most people um, out of the Formula One field, and they in that car they probably would have got there. I, I don't think that's particularly Alonso. Right. Okay, but then come the race. That's uh, where the that's where yes. the, the extra skill comes in. The the, that's right. The traffic and 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 when when the air gets taken off you going to these corners. Now Alonso is brilliant driver, and of course we know when we see what he's doing in Formula One. Now, much less what he was doing before, he is extra special, um, and uh, as a driver, whether he can use that in the race, that's another thing. If that car doesn't quite work, if it's got a little bit too much push, or if it's a little bit loose, a little bit tail happy uh, in that corner, that problem goes on for a long time, all the way around turn three, till you're out of turn four, and then all the way around turn one and turn two, and you can quickly find yourself moving back, because the problem, you don't come to a hairpin and you can muscle around, and then you've got a, a flat out f corner that everyone takes flat. You don't have that. It's like a man with a piece of string in the middle of the track, you know, staying in the middle of the track, and the car goes around and around, like a circus ride going around there. If that's out, you're in trouble. Yeah. And wh how did you find the speedways when you first first tried one? The, uh, the, the They were fine when, when uh, we, I was doing it in, in Indy Lights, and then they were on the shorter ovals, um, and so Phoenix... Nazareth, those sort of places, um, and so there was one mile ovals roughly, and s and yes, you would get a bit of um, disturbance, but not to the extent that you would get on on the super speedways, and um, and it's all completely about setup. You know, they're driving a a really frightening car during uh, uh, qualifying at Indy. You could get to t I'd do two hundred and eighteen mile an hour, and it was absolutely scary, and I get into a, an A.J. Foyt car, which actually hasn't done that well this year, but, but there goes around, suddenly it's 224, and it's easy. And so it's just, it's just like, uh, I don't know, like riding a bicycle on a, on a slippery side, sidewalk. You know, you just got to, it's very, very delicate, but if that car works, it's easy. If yeah. it doesn't work, it's the most frightening thing in the world. Yeah. When you say easy, I, I don't think it's sort of easy enough for, for the general public to jump in. It's still there's a, there is a challenge there. I know you're probably being very modest, but, but well, I think that it's, it's not. Yeah, yeah, yes, you're, you're you're thinking, but you're you're feeling it. As long as it feels okay, because yeah, because it's difficult for people to imagine when you're at Indy, you're lapping, doing a two and a half mile lap in about thirty six seconds. That's what you're doing. But you would look at the uh, the speedo on the dash as you exited turn four. You knew you had to read at least two hundred and thirteen mile an hour. 
uh, on that to make this a good lap. You'd see 211 or 212, and you think, oh, that is really slow. It, it, it changes. It, it, it changes. You know, um, your perspective of what's fast changes. Yeah. So what's, uh, just sort of rewinding a bit, what, what is it that, I mean, leaving India aside, what is it that separates the likes of Alonso to the kind of the, the, the good Lesser. drivers? Y- yes. He, he has a, a fantastic feel for where the limit is, and he can just go that little bit over the limit um, and, and then bring it back. He's one of those sort of drivers. Uh, he just, I think it's mostly in his feel that, that uh, he's um, brilliant in the wet, he's brilliant when he's got to carry a car on his back, and I just think he knows he'll take that chance and he can deal with it, whereas a lot of people, if the car moves a little bit, they'll back away from it, and he just has a feel for the surface. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned um, the Andressis there. Am I right in thinking that Mario wants to come over and see you to, to see if he can find a few Ents in his two-seater Indy car? <laughs> yes, it's quite, it's quite funny that, um, because Marco has been coming over. He's qualified just behind uh, Alonso this time. I think uh, he's seventh, I think, on the grid. And he's a great natural driver, um, and we're getting him technically better. And he, so he's been over quite a bit. And uh, now, so Mario apparently, or Marco says he's bringing him over next time because Marco talks to Mario about what he's doing. And, and Mario's still at the age of what, 76, 77? I mean, still competitive. Yeah, absolutely. He does these, oh, very much so. And, and he does these drive arounds. So the people on the oval with a two seater IndyCar, and, and they sit in the back. And he's roaring around the speedway, and then now he's coming in and saying to Marco, "Oh, I just got the steering out of it by a fraction coming out of this corner. I, you know, I picked up you know two miles an hour doing that stuff." And and he's he's talking about the stuff. So apparently, he's uh, Marco's dragging him over for the next day that we do. So that'll be that will be fun. That'd be brilliant. Um, now, as I, I mentioned earlier, that Karun called me up and and gave me sort of lots of things to ask. There's, we've got lots of other readers' questions as well, so we're gonna we're gonna oh, get man. to those. Um, but. He said, "Ask about the Nico Rosberg story." This is the the, the end of the championship story. That, yes, I think I we, we, yes, we were at um, the Autosport Awards, and he got a big trophy there. Yeah, and then and it, as he came off stage, uh, I was at the f- sort of near the front of the stage on the left hand side as we look at the stage, and Mercedes were on the right hand side. But he he came off of this trophy, and then he just came down and sat down, pulled up a chair, and sat there, and, and just said. Thank you. You know, uh, we listened, and he goes flat car. <laughs> and really, it's something that he uh, kept locked in his brain for I don't know since we started doing stuff with him there. And then he just sat down and chatted away, very, very, very politely, very kindly um, during the um, Felipe Massa's retirement speech, which was not that long the speech, but neither was his Massa's retirement. You know. No, exactly. And, uh, yeah. They chatted away, and it just seemed that the the moment the moment he stopped racing. He became this thoroughly warm, reasoned chap, you know, rather than he's quite intense, obviously, all the way through his racing, which you would be, you know. But that was a real surprise and very kind of him to just come down. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. As, and as to, uh, wh- one of the things I was wondering, actually, on the way here was, um, as far as I know, you're the, you're the only person that sort of teaches this, these specific kind of, um, I, d- I don't know how to put it, the, but this specific technique. Dynamics, I yeah, suppose. Dynamics, yeah, dynamics, yeah. Why, I mean, it, with the calibre of names that you've got coming through your school and what they say about you in terms of how brilliant it is, why aren't more people setting up shops on how to actually teach? I know they obviously wouldn't do the same job as you, but why isn't this technique more widely known? 
it, that's a, that's a tough one, and, and I work with so many drivers, and I keep thinking who could we pick out of this group that could take this on because you know I can't go on doing it forever and the, the queue is so long doing it so I, I do think that and um and I th think it's how you communicate with the, the people um you don't want to be instructing to show how fast you are you don't want to be doing it in order to get a drive from a wealthy amateur well people do and that's that's fine and that's fair because they develop relationships and so on but what I do is I'm, I make sure that person is the most important person in the world and the only thing that matters is that they go forward five atoms, uh, you know, an hour. And I, I learned this way of thinking actually from David Robertson, who was Steve Robertson's dad, yeah. and uh, they've been, we've been friends since the 80s, and they put Jensen into Formula One and Kimi, and, and, and David, has uh, passed away very sadly now, um, was an East End boy made good, and he made a lot of money before he got into the management of, of racing drivers. And he would say to me back in the 80s, he would go, people say to me, Rob, they say, it must be great to be your own boss. And he goes, no, I'm not my own boss. Everyone's my boss. I've got a thousand bosses. I make sure everyone gets what they want. And it was a good line, you know, and then out of that, of course, is a trickle-down effect. And that stays in my mind. Someone arrives, and they've come from Brazil, Argentina, Australia, just for two days, America, US. They're good guys. And the only thing that matters is them. Now, I, I know that would be common sense, but... A lot of people get it wrong. Mm, yeah. And, and uh, so I think that then it's a matter of, well, how do you communicate? You've got to x-ray into the person. Mm. You've got to x-ray and you've got to, you're driving around and you, you know in your blood when, when you're driving around, I think I know what the problem is here. We say techniques and there's certain lines and bits and pieces. But there's, uh, you can tell by their relationship, by the way they move their body, you know, all right, this is going to be a longer job. It's going to be a shorter job. We can get on to other things now. So I'm not sure why people, I think they get used to you and they know, you know, it's pretty safe. You know, we don't go doing a driver from one F1 team and then be telling secrets to another F1 team. Yeah. They seem to trust me. It was very safe with me because I was about a minute off the pace. But you, you, did, you, did, you found seconds and seconds and seconds between my first lap and, and last. You, you um, showed great uh, uh, promise. Potential in, in another life. <laughs> there was a lot of room. No, there was, <laughs> there was a, a lot, lot of room for improvement. For, no, no. There was <laughs> great potential and then and, 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 and your future life, which I, I think, you know, yeah. you'll, you'll be able to... When, when I'm half the height I am, then I, yeah, I'll you be are, perfect. You are, yeah, I think you're out Dan Gurney, Dan Gurney, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> exactly. Mm. Um, right, I did, I, I did mention these reader's questions. Um, yeah. So I'm just sort of picking these at random. Um, this one's from Karim, who... He's wondering whether you have any insights about Esteban Ocon um, when he went to use your Vauxhall for training. Is, is it, what, how do you rate him as a driver? Because he, he's doing very well in the Force India at the moment. He's doing very, very well. Um, he's the right personality. He's got broad shoulders as, as a personality, which I think when you get into Force India, there are proper blokes in that team, and, and you need to be able to, to have broad shoulders in there because they're, they're a very practical team, and he's got that. Um, and he's uh, he's got a, a good good humour about him. And then when it comes to the driving, he is fast. We he'll be back again shortly. We're doing we're going to keep working on it. Uh, we we can get, just get a little bit more rotation out of the car, and you know, we'll just see that the values just move on a little bit. But he's just a good, 
very, very fast driver. Thoroughly deserves that drive, and he's only going to get better. We like him very much. Do you, uh, do, with any of your pupils, do you ever get to a stage where you think, you know what, there's, I actually can't teach you anything else, or is there always something that you can tweak, improve on? People understand what you want them to do, and they see it on the stopwatch. Then when they are laughing, the people who do a lot of days, um, many, many days, um, and and it becomes a little bit of a battle where just near enough is not good enough. So we've got all of the things, but it's amazing how you need to keep reminding and working and going, no, that was just a little bit too hard on the brakes there. The car didn't change direction. Forget the lap. You know, we get down to uh, a lovely guy, Artem Markolov. He, he's won the Bahrain GP2, or F Formula 2 now. And let's do a lot of days with him. And we battle it out and we just get like, you know, we know the lap's going to be a tenth off because the car went on a bit long. We abandon the lap. So you get to a point where you just keep going over and also um, things change. You start to highlight different things. Um, the, I'm trying to think of um, who I was talking about. Oh, oh, Luca Giotto is his teammate. Um, and again, very, very talented. Came second uh, the last race at, at uh, Barcelona. And uh, there was a few joins you could feel in his inputs. You know, you can feel these little energy spikes going on for a while. And then after a day or two, they went away. And we got this lovely feel there the other day, which thought, this is really good. Except the corners were going on a little bit long. So once all the other stuff had been taken out of the way, the other little problems become clear. They become clearer. And so now the next time he's back, we'll be shortening those corners up a little bit. When that happens, we may find that maybe the throttle application is a bit too sudden or something. You never know. Yeah, so it's a never-ending story. It is, yeah. 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 Um, so certainly with someone like well, me. I think Sterling Moss <laughs> said it, didn't he? So you, you never get that perfect yeah. lap. He'd say when he was winning Monaco, I was reading it uh, um, uh, just last week. He said, right, I'm going to make this a qualifying lap You know, while he's yeah. leading the 61 Monaco Grand yeah, Prix. Yeah. And then something would just go slightly wrong, so you, yeah. you start again, and that's what we do. Yeah, and he was, he was saying that um, I think he then reset the lap, not necessarily on the start-finish line, but no, whatever corner he from was this on. Point forward, from yeah. this point forward, yeah. And long-distance races were great for this. You know, I, I used to go around, uh, you were running around in Dubai on the Mont Daytona, so, and you would be practicing all this stuff, and you'd think, oh, that corner went a bit long, you idiot. And then for sure, as sure as eggs don't bounce, it's, it's two-tenths slower on that lap, and then you put it right in the next lap. Yeah. Um, right, I'm going to keep, keep trying to find some readers' questions. We've got so, so many of them. I'm going to get no, not at all. I've got so many that I'm going to get in trouble if I don't, don't um, right. ask many. So there's one here from DR. Um, uh, like others, I have heard various reports as to the results of your initial evaluations of some current F1 drivers, especially Kimi and Lewis. Could you please confirm the following is correct? Kimi passed with flying colours, although technically he failed as he clipped a cone. And then you sent Lewis on his way with a comment that there was nothing you could teach him. No, no, no. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I don't remember Lewis being there. Uh, right, uh, right. There was absolutely nothing that you could uh, you could uh, have, have taught Lewis. I mean, he is just such a great driver, and so so I, I don't rec I don't recall that. Um, um, Kimmy, uh, yeah, well, Kimmy claims that it was me who hit the cone, you know, <laughs> right. and, and yeah, I did, but that wasn't on the, the fastest lap. Yeah, I don't know how I could see that, um, and, uh, but I know it was he who did it, but anyway, so there's still a dispute going on. He's going to come and put that right soon, I think. <laughs> and with, because Kimmy, I, th I think um, sort of the general kind of, the general view of Kimmy is that he's very, he's 
very, very sort of quiet and doesn't say much. But I think actually when he's away from a racetrack, mm. he's a much more lively character. Always got a great black sense of humour. He's, yeah. he's, he's quite funny. I yeah. find him quite funny. And, uh, and just amongst people that he knows, I think he's, he's... And also, you know, he hasn't forgotten where he came from. You know, I remember talking to him back at the... Uh, in the very early days, and David and, and Robertson had helped them out, and Steve Robertson, you know, obviously they were taking care of everything. And I did say to him, you remember where this came from, won't you? And he goes, I will remember. I did, he didn't need me to tell him. You know, when he started making uh, money, the first thing he did was make sure that the parents had their house. He's got friends in Finland. He helps them out with their businesses and bits and pieces. He's, he's, uh, he, he's, he's one of the good guys. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually very rare that you hear about a lot of the good stuff that the Formula One drivers do. Mm. And obviously, the, I mean, I suppose the latest one that everyone did hear about was Jensen giving so much to, um, to Billy Munger. Mm. Um, that was in the news. But they, you know, I think there's, I think there's um, sometimes quite a sort of a negative view of these F1 drivers uh, because you don't, the, we don't have the full picture. But actually, I think, you know, most of them are all pretty decent people. M most of them are, you know. And I heard Damon Hill saying it on, on TV, you know, racing drivers are, are, are nice people. Except when you, you know, if you step on, on their, step on their toes. You know, <laughs> and then, you know, that's, that's different. But then yeah. they're racing. But they are nice people. Yeah. Um, right, we've got one from here, uh, here from Diego uh, Ruiz. Uh, he says, have you ever learned something noteworthy or had any particular insight from your pupils? I think you're always doing that, um, and um, bec because it'll be a phrase they'll come up with. You know, we're lapping, we're doing a hundred laps up there, and they'll do something, and you'll think that gave it a slightly better exit, and it'll be just the way they do it. But yes, I, I think you're always absorbing it. You know, I've been doing it thirty years, and so you and and some of the best drivers in the world. So you are sitting there, you can't help but learn or study because they're doing most of the laps. I only do a couple of laps in the morning and maybe a couple in the afternoon just to set a lap time. And that you're articulating it all the time and having to solve those problems, it means you're thinking about it more. You have to make sense to them as well. And so it's hard to think of, of a one particular thing that um, you've actually learned from a driver but you've observed, say, Kimmy, was very good at the rate of input on the throttle. You know, just as the weight's coming down on the car, you know, that's been coming a bit more flat, and the throttle goes down at the same rate as the weight's coming down. And he was very good like that during the traction control era, yeah, because he would just feed it in and not use up as much traction control as Montoya would, who would go bup, 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 and, and Kimi would not use it as much. And, and, and that he saved a bit of fuel doing that, because I think the fuel's still... It spits out when the traction control is working. So, uh, and and then so you'll you'll keep that in mind. You know, uh, you might be trying to introduce it, but you keep that feel in mind and try and introduce it to other people. And and Kimi was a good example of that. Yeah. What do you think um, happened to Kimi sort of recently with in his sort of his second Ferrari career? Because when he when he came back to F1 after the World Rally Championship, he was you know into Lotus or the sort of new incarnation of Lotus, yeah. and was. Um, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But then he's sort of quite, he's shaded quite heavily, certainly this year, against Vettel. And I think a lot of people say he's got very specific demands on the setup of the car. He and if the car isn't quite where he needs, a bit like Button. Yes, he well, yes, he, he's uh, a bit more broader based than Button. Um, but he likes the car to follow its nose, and um, and a bit in the same way that Nigel Mansell was in there that if the car would follow its nose um, into the first half of the corner, then he was fine. Um, 
but that really depends on the on the setup of the car. And once the car follows its nose, and he's good, and and maybe it's he still wants to find it. I, th- I think he can do it with this car. I think the reason he hasn't um, out qualified Vettel more are just little mistakes he's making. You know, he uh, overdid it on the exit of the last corner. He tried to make it up, at, I think, at Bahrain. And, and uh, it's actually a mistake rather than the ability to just go fast. And, uh, and he'll, he will know that, and he will start to hopefully reduce his mistakes pretty soon. Yeah. And also, his corners are going on a fraction long again. He used to manipulate the direction change. He used to rotate the car a little bit more mm. uh, previously. And now he's carrying a lot more corner entry speed but then the, the exit of the corner is going on a little bit long. Uh, there, just just looking at it from you know from the armchair. Yeah, and uh, but it's, as a, I mean, obviously you're you're focused on the actual driving technique. But is is some of the teaching a mental barrier you have to get through? With some with some drivers, is it is it a sort of sometimes more of a mental problem than an actual technique problem? I find that once you get the technique right, the mental problem goes away. It's uh, once you show them. How? If you move your body like this, if you look at where you want to get to there, if you wait for the car to rotate, uh, if you sit on this side of the track instead of that side of the track, the lap times come down, and then I think, I, I think the mental problems go away. Um, right, we've got uh, got one, another one from Diego actually. He was just asking about w- whether you'd like to have gone to F1 in the 80s um, and whether you would have enjoyed it or not. I think it's pro- probably a yes and a yes, isn't it? I, I would think so. You know, the, the, the nearest we truly got was was being bought out of the the Belgium Grand Prix drive in, in 81 by Alboreto because uh, I was entered the race and <laughs> had the super license and, and, and Ken Turrell, who'd found his way through to me on landlines in those days, you know, and he uh, uh, somehow, and uh, he talked to Ron Turnack at, uh, at uh, Ralt by then, not Brabham, but Ralt. And so we're in the, and Ken's, okay, now the only thing that can go wrong here is that Alboreto comes down with all this money and buys this drive, you know, and I think on the, on the Wednesday uh, before the race, um, Count Zanon, who was a backer of Alboreto, paid for his wages at Ferrari as well, um, came down the pit lane uh, and bought the drive. And that was so that was as close as it, it probably got. There was one or two others, the Fittipaldi one uh, earlier that year, but they sold the drive uh, for the opening round to, I think, Chico Serra. Uh, but I signed up there at Fittipaldi, right. and that was a few months before. And so those things. But then I had a very simpleton view of motor racing. I thought if you did okay in the lower classes, you know, the F3s and bits and pieces, you got your super license and people took you on as a racing driver. But it hadn't factored in then that money was playing a part. We think of it now, but it was also doing it there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's in, uh, you've d- uh, we mentioned in the intro to how many championships you've driven in. Do you, uh, was there a specific type of car that you loved driving? It, it was there anything that kind of from from these all, you know all these decades that you think back and think you know what that was actually a pretty perfect car. For there are there are two uh, cars that stand out, and one was the Ralt RT3 Formula Three car. I got the first win for one of those, yeah. and and I'd worked very closely with Ron Turnack, uh, from whom I learned a great deal, and and still admire, and he's and he's still alive out in in Sydney, and. Um, and we worked and worked, and that car finally became the best car in the field. And by the time that I'd got out of it, it was it was a really good car, and that was at one with itself. Um, so I remember that, but I also remember the process we went through to make it work. And Ron yeah. was a, a great practical designer, and, and uh, he worked with Jack Brabham, obviously, and so on. So I liked that. Now, I, I, 
Another one's an odd one, but but uh, we got a. It was at Darlington Motor Speedway, and I was racing in a Ford Thunderbird, run by Derek Cope. Derek Cope won the Indy, sorry, the Daytona 500, I think in 1990. He was running a team, and I knew Derek very well. And um, so driving the, the, it was a Ford Thunderbird at Darlington, and we just got this fantastic balance. It's a 1.3 mile track, a D-shaped with big banking, and yet even then with the car, we were lapping just shy of a 160 mile an hour average on a 1.3 mile track, and with a D shape, so when you came out of turn two, it squared up a bit, and you just, car just needed to change direction there, and I still remember that day and how good that car was, and it was really? fast. But there are others, of course, you're looking for a balance and all sorts of things, yeah. but uh, but those two stick in my mind. Did you, did you know at the time how great the F3 car was? Or was it a case of over the next few decades, you sort of... The the no. more cars you drove that weren't as good as it. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. And actually, it's, it's a funny point, that, because the you get that car, and we're sitting on the front row, um, and it's a great car in, 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 say, 1980. You go back go a, a few years later, and, and the, if you drive the same car, and I did do, actually, test it, and now, of course, it, it, you're testing it for somebody that's racing it, and now it's a second off the pace. It's a shocking car, you know, <laughs> and yet it's the same balance. It's because everyone else had moved on. So I think when you think it's a great car, that's only relative to how the opposition are doing, how you're doing compared to everyone else. This was a fantastic yeah. car. Look at, uh, you, we saw a similar thing with Grosjean at the beginning of last year. He's driving the Haas, uh, he's doing the Sauber thing from the year before, where they're running fifth, sixth, and great results. He gets out of that car after the first race or two. So this is the best car I've ever driven. This was the best Formula I've ever driven. And he talked to him like three months later, you know, and it's, and it's down the grid, you know. It's, uh, he, 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 it was the ex actual opposite of what he thought. Yeah. So it was the same car. I, I remember when I very first started racing very badly, um, and I came into the pits after the race. My dad was waiting there, and he said, so, you know, how's the car? Is it all okay? Like, understeer, oversteer? Have you got anything like that? I said, and I said, um, no, it was, it, was, it was really good, actually. It was really good. And he just said, it's probably because you weren't going fast enough. <laughs> and sure right. enough, it was. As I sort of learned, went faster and faster. And then you got chronic understeer on the way in. You got, you know, all this. So you started noticing these things. But it, that was because I was so rubbish. Oh, <laughs> oh. It, was a, it was a wonderful car. It's a very familiar story, that. And you're, you're, a driver will say that when they've come before. They've seen where they are on the grid. Yeah, no, it's good, it's good. And then the time, uh, eighth. Yeah, had a bit of understeer. And then really hard to, you, you know, this. The story changes. <laughs> um, we got got a question here from Jane Eyes. Um, hey Rob, you have a unique perspective on what it takes to be on the F1 grid. Tell us who is the best of the new young driving talent coming through your door at the moment, and why? Well, clearly it's Callum Eilot, <laughs> because I believe Jane, my, Jane Eyes happens to be his mother. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I'm top of that. Actually, Callum is. Um, is a very talented guy. Uh, he's a bit of a James Hunt character, um, and uh, overcooked it a bit at um, at Poe on the weekend. He was, I think, he had the lead and crunched. But uh, he he's very very fast. Got dropped by Red Bull, and then was part of it. But then mo that happens to most people. And then he's you know picked it back up again. And and uh, I think he's got real talent. And there, Jack Aitken and GP3, yeah. um, and I. Um, uh, he's a very, very talented driver of, of that's of the British ones. There's others. Jake Hughes is looking promising. And then, you know, you get into uh, Formula 2. 
I love Artem Markalov. I think he's a very, very talented uh, driver. If a case of doing a, just that lap, he can do it. He had a bit of trouble getting off the line at the last race. He was sitting there on that pole position, and then right. I think it was about ninth by the time he got to the, the next corner. Um, there's a lot of very, very um, talented drivers out there, but... Um, uh, yeah, of those coming through, and uh, because I'm leaving some people out here whom I no doubt know very well, but um, you know, but, but it's clearly got to be Callum. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Jane, hopefully that answers yours. Yeah, uh, are we, are we close, biased, Jane? Uh, <laughs> non-biased response to that. Um, is, uh, so one here from Andy Bliss. Uh, from your days in F3, uh, who do you regard as the other drivers who should have made Formula 1 and didn't? Were there quite a few names from your F3 days that you thought, that, you, know, you know what, these guys have got? got what it takes and didn't? And I think most that looked like they could um, got there. I think I, I... Mike White was a good driver, South African driver. Mm. I had some battles with him uh, in the march. He sadly just passed away recently. Um, I thought he was very, very talented, but I, I believe that most of those... I don't remember, recall coming across anyone going, ah, you know... That's better because you know, the group where I was doing that was with you know, with Prost or PK or Warwick or Hansen, Nigel so it Mansell. A, it was a talented bunch, wasn't it? It was a, uh, yeah, it was a, uh, a, a good bunch of uh, people, De Chazeres, mm -hmm. and I have a great shot at home from one of the races, and it's me in front of Prost, Mansell, and Boots, and, and I'm thinking <laughs> I must have taken a wrong turn here somewhere. Now, now none of us were happy in that race because I think someone like I think it was De Chazeres or something right. won it, um, but so we were all we were were just you know, battling around in, in Formula Three, uh, but all the, I, I think. I think the good ones got there anyway, you know, yeah. and, and, and I didn't because I was just too, I, I don't know, I, d I never organised any sponsorship, I never did, I just drove the car, you know, you yeah. got off the banana boat from New Zealand and you could, and and, um, and that was it, I didn't yeah. even think particularly that money was part of it, you know, you had enough to keep going. Yeah. That was it. I know, it's, well, it's, it's always been the case, hasn't it, it's not, not just now, but money's always taught. Yeah, I talked yeah. to Marlborough actually. Uh, the guys from Marlborough. That would have worked out very well. Well, I, I thought I thought so. Yeah, um, <laughs> but they. But it turns out I didn't realise then that um, you know all the budgets came mostly from the countries that they were in, and they, and they said, Rob, you know, we sell like ten packets of Marlborough a year in New Zealand. How all the more reason to sponsor me. Well, I suppose you said, oh, of course, yes. I didn't think I didn't fit to say that, but um, yeah. So it's a, a Marlborough, uh, a Marlborough thing. But I think they do pool it because I had to do. Uh, I went out to s work out to um, select who was going to be the driver for um, the uh, Indy Lights team in the early 90s, and Marlborough backed, and so I had to go through, um, I don't know, seven or eight drivers uh, at Phoenix, at the uh, Firebird, the raceway. And so we went through and through and through, and finally we got down to two drivers. They were driving Indy Lights for Steve Horn, the Tasman things. The big boss from Marlborough, New York, a woman, was it was there sitting at Phoenix and then said to all the other countries, right, your driver's not getting the drive, so you have to contribute to the um, the Marlborough budget for these two drivers. I just wanted to talk about rallying for a bit. Mm. Um, and it's such a specific discipline. And I think people sort of, sort of might think, well, you, you know, people are coming along to sort of see you about tarmac rallies, but mm. that's not the case. It's all about, it's also about gravel. And I think Chris Meek's been to see you, Herbin, mm. and yeah. um, wh why, how, d how do you coach about sort of coach rallying when you didn't rally? 
I did a rally. I did, oh, right, you did. Oh, I did <laughs> Sorry, a rally. Sorry, stupid me. I, I well, yeah, is it not on I the know. list? <laughs> I think it must have not printed off the third, fourth, or fifth pages of your... It was the most <laughs> frightening thing I'd ever done. It was, it was. It fogged, you know, all day. It was the the, um, the Lakeland stages. Okay. And yeah. um, Vauxhall, oddly enough, had a, um, a, a guest car, a Nova. So this is going to be... How long is that? 30 years ago? Something. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it was so foggy. You couldn't see anything. And Colin Wilson, who uh, was a uh, good co-driver, mm. uh, drove with Auricula. And uh, he was my co-driver. We're coming over a brow. You couldn't see anything. Left, right, four. You know, I'm in fourth gear, and I go, I go fourth to third, you know. And he said, you know, uh, uh, Penty Auricula, he would have gone from fourth to fifth there, not fourth. <laughs> <laughs> um, but once you could see, I was all right. Yeah, so no, you're talking yeah. to a great rally experience. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, so, yeah. well, well that's you know, a stupid I, question. Well, no, I'll accept your apology. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, well, I apologize profusely mm, then. But yeah. um, it's, it, maybe if I try and phrase that differently, <laughs> how do you pass on, on your wealth of rallying experience to, <laughs> to the likes of um, Herven and, and yeah, me? Indeed, yeah. Um, it, it started actually as a. Um, a tarmac type thing. Uh, that's where people were saying, well, you know what, they've got these tarmac things that's a bit like, you know, probably touring cars or something. So that's what started uh, it doing. Um, and and again, it's not so much about car control or left foot braking or anything like that. It, it's still, you want to keep the car as straight as you can. Now, you've got to have car control. You've got to, you know, sit there with the thing on opposite lock and they slide in the snow and they do bits and pieces like that. But the fastest way is still the most boring way. And I really say, so we, I was with um, ProDrive, I think we, we, we um, had the Subarus and we went to um, an off-road place. I thought, right, now let's time this. Chris Atkinson, I think Solberg was uh, part of it, but I think it was just Chris Atkinson, who's a very good Australian rally driver. And we said, let's time this, let's get to this hairpin here, and we'll go and there will be Colin McRae. And you go, full obviously, like, around we go, we time it. And then we'll be, take a racing line wide end, and oh, we'll use the handbrake here, doing this stuff here. And we, would, we really got into it. And in the end, we thought, just down around the corner, with no particular line, just, just following the, the, the thing, and out, and very little wheel spin, and then off we went again, and it was fastest. You know, and so then we realised that that uh, this stuff is working on the gravel as well. You still want short corners. You still want traction. You still want to be able to slow the car down, not too brutally, uh, yeah, so that it doesn't lock up. And you just get used to doing it. So it's it's turned out. I mean, they most of them um, show up. You know, um, Herbertin did lots of uh, days. Hayden Padden, Andreas Mickelson was over recently. He's very very good. Mm. And Pontus Tideman is becoming, and he's, and he's the, the level down one, but he's still getting 10th overalls and winning his classes and things like that. And um, there's, yeah, most of them, Alfred Evans turned up as part of an MSA day and so on. Yeah. And, um, and, yeah, I've done quite a lot with, um, with um, Malcolm Wilson's um, uh, drivers as well. Yeah. Uh, Mika Herman turned up uh, yeah, a lot. We got a lot, a lot of days. And also, we'd go out in his car sometimes. I went into a special stage with Mika. How was that? It's all right, yes. It was we, in France. We were there for a couple of days, and we just just um, sat there. Well, Miko, uh, you know, did the stages so we could see it in real life. Malcolm kept saying, "Bring the, c- go in the car. We'll bring the Ford down to, to Bruntingthorpe, you know." And I said, "I don't need it, Malcolm. It's all right, you know." We could, no, 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 bring it down. So, you know, so we'd, we'd have little goes and that, and then you'd see things. You'd say, "Well, look, you know, it's pretty jolty with this this gear shifts and bits and pieces." So it it was 
it was, it was uh, quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you use a Vauxhall. Vauxhall Astra. Yeah. I, 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 again, I was sort of mentioning, obviously, these you know high-profile Formula 1 drivers turning up to Bruntingthorpe, but I then know. getting into a Vauxhall Astra as well. I know. Why, why, why the Vauxhall Astra? It's just... It's just such a great car. <laughs> they don't break down, you know. They're far, they're faster than people think, and um, and they, yeah, they. I just love them. Uh, they, uh, you know, I, I used to say years ago that if I was a doctor, you know, working in there in Scotland or somewhere, and they're really, really in the outward areas there, and the snow and the rain and the bits and pieces, and you had to get the job done. I'd, I'd, I've taken a Vauxhall because you rely on them. You know, they're 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 tough. They're tough as old boots. Yeah. Yeah, and well. they're, and they're, they're fast. Um, I'm, I'm now sort of nervous about um, asking whether you've you've any done in motorbike racing because you you probably have, and I just haven't got it on the list. Um, it's, <laughs> no. well, it's, you know, with rally drivers, sports car drivers, you'll have you'll have bikers coming coming soon. Um, <laughs> but yeah. but it, the um, it, do you watch bike racing? I uh, do, and what's interesting about that is that it, we we obsess with the rate of weight transfer, that first five percent of any input. That uh, is is um, we know weight's transferred. The nose goes down, it goes down, or you turn the car and it's leaning to the left. It's transferred, but it's very hard to measure the first five percent of that. Which you know, the first two and a half percent is about naught to fifty k, and the second two and a half percent about fifty to two hundred. That'd be through braking or steering, and and if you can see it, what is the value of it? If you're trying to look at it digitally, um, you know, it, it's hard to to see. And and but when we're in the car, we can feel it, and it's weight transfer. When when I say to people, if you want to see weight transfer at work, watch a motorbike race because they're coming up, they're doing, they're lifting up, they're going this way, they're you know they're sitting the other side, they're they're leaning before they get to corners, and it's a great exercise in 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 understanding weight transfer is critical. All hidden in a racing car, you just don't see it, and it's measured. It's measured digitally and then is there a value in it people not sure that there's a value in it. well we now know there is and there's mathematical mathematical models being yeah. built and that's and bike racing is a great way to look at that but no i mean john certes um would come up uh, quite a bit because unfortunately with henry i was training henry mm. and, and it was great having john certes in the back of the car really? you know he, he would sit there and he was he was very very good um so there's a bike race that's been but not for that reason yeah. i think uh, when um uh, Valentino Rossi came up. It was uh, he was going to a rally super stage, and it was about the time he was going. It wasn't anything to do with bikes. Yeah, and his but that was I think was it the Monza rally. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's right, the uh, super stage, which, uh, which he won, I which think. he which he won. Yeah. And we, yes, we we uh, we we practiced um, uh, up at Bruntingthorpe just uh, a little bit. Mm. It's no, we may it's have we may have set the track up a little similar to the Monza one. <laughs> yeah, <it> might <laughs> have memory. Have, might wrong. have looked identical. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's, it's got a question here from Valentin. Um, Valentine? It's, it's something that I'm... T- no, it's without an E. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, I know you did very well. Yeah, yeah Valentin. <laughs> um, don't make me nervous about pronunciation as well, Rob. Um, <laughs> no, I'm sorry, Ed. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so he said, in, in equal cars, regardless of car behaviour, unbalanced, oversteering, etc., on Spa, Suzuka and Monaco, who would win? Vettel, Alonso, Hamilton, Ricardo, Verstappen, maybe Kimmy or even Hulkenberg? I think it's, uh, I, it's a question that I sort of wanted to ask, but with a slightly different angle in terms of who do you view as the quickest? Because you always hear Hamilton, Alonso, Vettel as kind of the fastest guys in Formula One or the most complete drivers. What are your yeah, thoughts? W- we're, we're assuming some imbalance here, I think, in that question. Because if people fiddle and faddle and get 
that ultimate car, Vettel can be world championship champion yeah, four exactly. times. So yeah, it's, if it's, it's not quite right, Danny Ricciardo is going to end Vettel's career. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So it's um, so we're assuming. Equal, mix, well, yeah. yeah, I would think... But then they, they have different styles and mm. like... Right. So let's say mixed conditions, a bit of damp, maybe Valentin's... Maybe we can paint a bit of a picture. So it's mixed conditions, uh, it's a bit damp, the car understeers on one corner, it's a bit tail-happy on the on through Puan, and, you know, all those things. Not quite right yeah. about pole positions there. Now, they're all great drivers, but you'd probably, if you were... Putting a tying a hand grenade around someone's neck and pulling the pin and and and, and taking a bet on who's going to get who would you really uh, put your money on to see who's going to get the furthest before it blows up? Um, <laughs> it's uh, not uh, a phrase I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would think you would go Alonso, Verstappen, Hulkenberg, really at broad based. And Hamilton not even on on the podium as it were. I think you. Oh, that's so cruel because obviously he'd he'd be a great driver, but but he would be. He's one of the most skillful drivers. They're all skillful. Kimi goes works right, you know. One of the, and because Kimi's done rallying, not he didn't actually win, but he's he loves he's, it. He did it to a pretty good level. He did a very good level, yeah. Um, but I think if we're sitting there saying right, who is your money going to be on? You really, really no or no prejudice. I mean, I'm hugely biased with Kimmy and and so on. But and and he has so a lot of affection for him, you know. So everyone would want him to do well. But I think you'd look at, um, uh, you know, you look at the. It would have to be a more broad-based driver that will muscle it. Yeah. And somehow you think that uh, Verstappen. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot so Verstappen. Hulkenberg. I, I would do that, but I don't want to be cruel to no, the others so who can all, all win. But having, you know, you, you, yeah. you, you get a feel for people. Yeah. Um, Not for Lewis, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a, um, there's, a, there's a question here from Piers that uh, is sort of like this, but kind of extends it a bit. Um, who would be the most naturally talented driver you've coached over the years? Uh, well, there's a few of, uh, there's a few, um, I mean, most of them, we're working with some of the best drivers in the world. And in terms of natural talent, I put um, Marco Andretti up there. Um, and uh, I talked to Murray about this as well. Um, he is a, a truly gifted car control driver. When he first started coming, I'm going, look, Marco, the, the IndyCar Championship, is, uh, you know, they've got tarmac on the track now. You know, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a dirt track championship. We don't, we don't need, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's uh, all of this now, um, so that's the squaring up. He he's a uh, but he has a great gift. Uh, he's a greatly gifted driver in a different environment. I know uh, in doing that. So, um, but I I I believe uh, I, when I think of a natural driver, and there are. I mean, look, we've got, we've got hundreds, we've got half the Formula One field or more, you know. So yeah. we're we're talking best drivers in the world. So it's but I would. I would. Um, I'm a fan of Mark, and and when you sit That's with them, you know, you're sitting with them. You you know, and you're doing laps after laps after laps. It's a database that builds up, and there's something in your bones and something in your blood that says, yeah, this is the guy that if we're in trouble and we're going to the corner there, uh, that I would I would back. Really? Mm. So not not me then. And I was going to say, <laughs> uh, I was going to say, uh, I, did he say drivers, didn't he? Or did he say driver? Yeah, sorry, journalists. Dri no, yeah, dri no drivers, so so plural. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> the, the, the next one up, uh, the, the Ed Foster standard, uh, is well remembered. <laughs> is how, much, how much do you think is down to 
the natural talent from with someone like Marco Andretti and how much is down to opportunity because if you take mm. someone like Hamilton mm. the amount, when he came when he arrived in Formula 1 he had done so many testing miles mm. that actually he was the he was I think arguably the best prepared Formula 1 rookie there's ever been and and almost ever been since so if someone else with you know maybe less talent or something had a similar opportunity to him and had the same amount of drive surely they would have got almost the same distance if you see what I mean I mean, you, how much you, does you natural are, ability? You, you are right about that, uh, especially when you said almost. Um, the, the, um, you, you could give that opportunity to a thousand people and they would never have gotten near. Lewis was worthy of yeah. that uh, indulgence. And, um, and then you think, well, not as naturally uh, gifted, uh, but massively determined Nigel Mansell, who... Now, Jim Clark was twice world champion, uh, with, uh, having done about the same number of races that Nigel did before he won a Grand Prix. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, fairly similar numbers there. And I raced against Nigel a lot. He, he was always good, hard driver, always fast. But you wouldn't have, say in the 70s, we're racing around, and of the two British drivers, you'd see, say, Derek Warwick and Nigel Mansell. Um, you wouldn't have put Mansell ahead of Warwick in terms really? of, of natural talent. You, yeah. you know, you would not... Now, it, circumstances led, and Nigel's, Nigel's um, determination was just unbelievable. And, um, and I think that's the example, that he, he came through, and when he finally got the right car, and at the right time, with the right amount of um, years of, of, of preparation, if you like, yeah. 75 Formula 1 races. Yeah. You know, um, then he came good. So that can happen. Uh, by the way, but Mansell did become a very gifted driver. And, uh, and we spent a bit of time, we did a day in 1993 um, when we uh, had won the World Championship. And he was in America. So we, yeah. he and I went to uh, Elkhart Lake, Road America, right. road car. And we just did, you know. And I was sitting there with him then. And I thought, complete opposite of his personality and, com and felt different to when I was racing against him and he was really really subtle really gifted really great relationship with the surface and i was sitting thinking this is impressive this is the complete opposite because when you think about mansell's career you don't think about someone who finesse. is very like finesse exactly mm. that's yeah, exactly word. but i think his personality was one thing his determination uh, you know all that stuff um it's one thing but then but he had definitely evolved and I was sitting with him there and, and thinking, this guy, and this is 1993, this guy is really gifted driver. But I think that was an evolution. Yeah. The, is that the sort of the 10,000 hours argument? Yeah. And without, yeah. We weren't too hard on Nigel. He was fast when he started. He was w yeah, yeah. one of the people. There were many others as well. Um, but he went that extra little bit that got him to the point where you know, you would say, well, there was Senna and Prost, and then that fraction behind that would have been P.K. Mansell. You know, that fraction there, but he'd, he'd got awful close. Why does P.K. always get, I always think he gets quite short change, because he's multiple world champion, and oh. yet he's, ne he's never sort of mentioned in the same breath as uh, some other drivers. Uh, yeah, and, and I shared the garage with him, you know, back in the, the 70s at, at, at Rel. He, um, we, 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 our Formula 3 cars were in the fiberglass shop, 
and you never wanted to be the first back from the race and put in your car in first because it wasn't sealed at the end of the fiberglass, you were on the stones, and so the last guy would get to park his car on the concrete, and so we'd be hovering around to be last in the in the <laughs> carriage, and um, and yeah, so he obviously saw a fair bit of him. He won the championship as yeah, I was fourth, <laughs> but but he won, and I think he was a really gifted, talented driver, um, and and a real thinker. I was talking to Ron Turnack. Now uh, uh, about it, actually, not that uh, not long ago, ten years ago, and um, and he was saying it's difficult to really rate PK. Now he knew PK well because we're both at the Rolf factory. You right. know, they're doing it. He said, but his car was so worked on. You know, he'd sit lower in the car, and they had lightened this. They did that. He had spare car, and all that. but nevertheless, when you're when you're out there racing with someone, you can tell that this guy was a a very talented, finessey type driver who could who could absolutely was truly opportunist you know never missed a, an opportunity to do something well either with the car and now I, I think maybe he was not he was quite offensive about um, Nigel Mansell but, but didn't but get on that well and his <laughs> wife as well and I don't think that helped him um, and he, he, Nigel was a British favorite and so in a way PK was the enemy, and mm. w and remember listening to Nelson when he won the title in '87, he said, you know, you look around the Williams garage, no one's happy, you know, yeah. no one's happy. They want Nigel to do this, <laughs> and, and I think that's the view that's taken largely in Britain. I mm. think. Yeah. I think if you go to South America, uh, he, you know, they, he's a triple world champion, yeah. and he is a, was a very very talented and gifted driver, and I would definitely put him up there. So I think some of it's. To do with his, but he's a practical joker, yeah, you know, uh, as well, and and um, and he was sort of funny, but he could be quite cruel yeah. with his wit, you know. Yeah. And I think maybe that, um, yeah, people thought, uh, you know, but th but I think if you get away from Britain, and yeah. uh, and, and and other people will have a, a different view of that. Mm. Uh, it could be partially that because he was so uh, quite cruel about Mansell, and 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 also won the title. When yeah, yeah, that people yeah. felt mounted, and that may colour it. I may be wrong. Yeah. Well, no, I'd, I'd, I'm absolutely not disagreeing. I think that was probably hit the nail on Close. the head. Um, I'd right. Well, we've only we've only got a few minutes left, so I'm oh. going to try and squeeze in a couple more questions. Sorry, yes. um, and uh, so I've got one here uh, f about um, from this is from Ray in Toronto, Canada. Hello, Ray. Um, he's 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 sent in loads of questions. So thanks so much for that, Ray. But I'm going to focus just on one. Um, he wants to know how you rate Van Dorn. Um, and he seems to be having a bit of a hard time at mm. the moment because he <coughs> certainly up until the start of this season he was he was the next big thing. Van Dorm, I, I haven't changed my mind there. I believe he is 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 a future champion. Um, he has definitely um, lost uh, he lost out to Alonso at the moment, mm. but he is he's a, a great driver in the very early stages. I'd liken him to Jochen Rindt, um and right. uh, a while ago. now. I think that's okay because it, we think of Jochen Rindt as the world champion in 1970 and battling with Stuart in 69. But in his first season of Formula 1, he was out-qualified by Bruce McLaren a lot. He didn't even qualify for the Monaco Grand Prix in 65. He was yeah. firmly out-qualified by John Surtees uh, in, in the Coopers in 66. Yeah. There was this chunk between those two that there is between Alonso and, uh, and, and Van Dorm right yeah. now. 67. He was about even Stevens with Rodriguez and Cooper. This is Rint, you know. And but of course he was winning in Formula Two um, as well. So we, we had that measure. We knew he was great, but he was not 
faster than Rodriguez. He was slower than Bruce. He was slower than than Surtees. And just later, when he got in, he had Graham Hill as a teammate, sixty nine. You know, in the car in the Lotus forty nine, he he became you know a, a challenger to Stewart generally. Yeah. And so we view Jock and Rint, and Jack Brabham thought he was better than Jim Clark. Yeah, Rint. Now, mm. now we view Jock and Rint uh, in the way we do. I still think it's early days, so let's give it a few years. Do, do you think there's an element of the likes of Lewis Hamilton, Carlos Sainz, maybe Max Verstappen, slightly skewering what people think about Formula One drivers when they first start? Because they, because you know, I mentioned just before how well prepared Lewis was. Verstappen's obviously a very special talent, but immediately was on a par, if not beating his teammate. Um, do you think that kind of small group of drivers have slightly ruined it for the likes of Stoffel Dam Van Dorn, who's just as talented but not coming in with so much preparation as Lewis who immediately not immediately but started beating Alonso I think I think that it will that 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 he'll evolve you but that has always happened that instant Grand Prix thing when Jody Schechter came in poof suddenly an instant driver when Nelson Piquet came in after a couple of early races but he was out there out qualifying Nicky Lauda instant driver um now Emerson Fittipaldi did win in his first few races, but th- he finished first there at Watkins Glen. You know, the Surtees was like forty-five seconds ahead and what have you. You know, I think Emerson evolved. You know, that by by the time we got to seventy-two, seventy-three, he had evolved into the driver that he was. And uh, and I'm, I'm ignoring the first win in nineteen seventy because I don't want to say it was inherited. It was great, but you yeah. know there were circumstances there, and so I think he evolved a little bit. Um, and I think that'll be the same. So yes, you're always comparing it to that, but give it two or three years because we qu- make so many quick judgments now. You know, that's in, that's out, uh, and and that's better. Um, and we know certain drivers are going to stay roughly where they are. You know, but having sat with all of these guys, um, Stoffel, I think has definitely got it. And I'd also put Danny Kvyat in a similar thing. He's been popping really up lately, and, uh, and and he's a real thinker as well. But yeah. I the point about. The um, um yes, but, but let's just give it give, give it some time. Uh, give, give it some time. Yeah. Um, right. Before final question, I'm going to actually pass over to Karun, um, who's he's got a sort of two-parted question for you. Mm-hmm. One is pick one. You have to give up coffee or smoking, and the second one, second part of the question is when are you giving him a job? Ah, right. Okay. Well, definitely it would be uh, a coffee. Yeah. I was, well, you've had tea today. I, had tea I, was, today. I was very disappointed after this. Yeah, I saw this so question yeah, come so in. No, so no. Yeah, indeed. So now, uh, so f- yeah, the smoking, my one small pleasure in life, Karun. I mean, you wouldn't deny me that, surely. And well, if he's asking for a job, I don't think he, I didn't we think job, he can. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. He, he, he's listened for it. Actually, the thing is, when we were up there the other day, we are doing the Channel 4 thing up there, and Karun was um, driving. And his memory, I said, oh, I think it's some sort of an illness you've got. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's brutal. I mean, the, 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 his powers of recollection uh, are extraordinary. Um, and, and so I think he's got a real gift there. And so therefore, okay, we talked about this at the beginning. Who could take it over? Kareem, uh, Karun, the job is yours. Bruntingthorpe, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, there we go. Look at that. We took a podcast and a job offer. So, <laughs> right. Who would have thought? All right. Um, Rob, thank you so much for coming down. Uh, it's Man. been absolutely fascinating. Uh, we, I'm sure we could have carried on talking for many more hours. Um, uh, but, uh, useless uh, facts. You've, you've got more, more important things to be doing. Not at um, all, no. Yeah, it was yeah. terrific. Thanks thank for you take- so much for coming in. Um, Alan, as always, thank you so yes, much thank you, Alan. For, for recording this and making it sound a little bit better than we do in real life. Um, we'll be back next month for another talk show. 
and we'll see you then. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for watching. Bye-bye for now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.